Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. My name is Peter Ravel. I'm the co-host of this show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Well, I got to tell you, we're going to take an amazing trip today on the American Shoreline Podcast down to the Emerald Coast of Florida, one of the most amazing stretches of shoreline in America, well known for its pristine, crystal clear water and absolutely brilliant white sand beaches it's like going to what people think of as the tropics the emerald coast a very special place and we're gonna have a great show today that's right peter uh i've actually never been to the emerald coast and i suspect uh much of our audience from around the american shoreline this will be a wonderful opportunity to take a trip in your imagination with uh, three wonderful guides as we learn about the ecology, the geology, what's going on, and also many of the programs that are uh, happening down there to preserve this space and to educate people about how valuable this unique ecosystem and environment is. That is great. And we're going to be joined today by Jim Trefilio, the director of the Pensacola and Perdido Bay Estuary Program. Melinda Gates, who's the environmental coordinator for Walton County and the current director of the Estuary Coalition in Walton County, and Jim Muller, the Bay County Restore Act coordinator. And for those of you out there on the Gulf Coast, you're well aware that the Restore Act is a huge funding source for all the counties along the Gulf Coast. All right. Well, before we get into the conversation, let's take a quick moment to have a word from our sponsors. Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network are brought to you by the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association, the premier coastal professional organization in America, and the upcoming National ASBPA Conference, which will be held in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, October 22nd to 25th. It's time to register and get ready for the conference, y'all. We are going to be there podcasting as the official podcasting channel of the ASBPA National Conference. So join us in Myrtle Beach, and we look forward to seeing all of our listeners and readers there. That's right. Uh, go to asbpa.org slash conferences to learn all about this year's national conference, uh, how to register and how to get there. It promises to be a great event. And boy, we look forward to seeing you all there. Well, everybody, let's start with an overview and introduce the audience around America to the Emerald Coast. And it has been referred, I guess, to, as the Emerald Coast since the 1940s and some early early marketing uh, efforts. But uh, it has some other names, too. It does indeed. Uh, uh, Jim Trefilio, why don't you start off and give us your overview of the Emerald Coast shoreline, and then we'll go to Melinda and Jim Muller. Sure. Thanks, Peter. Um, you know, the Emerald Coast, you know, was a was a marketing tool from way back when. Um, I actually used to work for the uh, tourist development department out of Okaloosa County, which is kind of in the heart of the Emerald Coast. But, you know, it, it is what you said it was earlier. It is this amazing beaches, uh, all this quartz sand that has come down from the mountains and is, has been a draw for tourists um, for years and years and years and a place where people love to live. Um, you know, it's it, it's got all kinds of different activities and certainly it has some issues with the environment and water quality. And, and that's some of the things that the three of us try to work on. Uh, Melinda, what do you think about what is what is important about the Emerald Coast or what how would you describe it to people around the country who've never been there? Well, I definitely echo what Jim Trevilio just mentioned, but, you know, some of the unique ecosystems that we have in this area include coastal dune lakes, which are only found in a few places in this world. The ones in Walton County are even more unique because they have this intermittent connection to the Gulf of Mexico, which none of the other coastal dune lakes in the world have that. So then we also have um, springs that are connected to the Florida aquifer, barrier islands and longleaf wire wiregrass forests that are just a neat feature that people can experience it's really incredible it's it's, it sounds like you know look most people when they think of uh america's most pristine beaches on the american shoreline 
Uh, this particular region is not what comes to mind, but I'll tell you, just go on to Google and look at some of what Melinda was just describing. Some of these forests, some of the, the just the water, the sand. I mean, it truly is a spectacular space. It is. And Jim Muller, uh, down in Bay County, Florida, uh, tell us about your overview of the of the Emerald Coast. Well, it, it, we are similar as far as when you go basically from the Apalachicola River and then go over to the Pensacola area. Uh, similar in terms of the sand, the incredible color of the water. Um, and then people do focus on the beach a lot, but also a lot of what uh, uh, relates to our quality of life and our sense of place are our bays. And that's a, um, a big part of what people that live here uh, experience and enjoy as well. And of course, those directly relate to the health of the waters right along the shores too. So uh, more and more, our visitors are becoming aware of uh, what our bay offers as well as our beaches. Um, and in the Bay County area, so named because of our bays, uh, you know, we we really are concerned about the health of the bay. It's in pretty good shape, but we want to make it better and, and keep it good. And we also have uh, spring run stream, large spring run streams in our county, uh, other areas great for paddleboard. Um, and so it's uh, it's an area to where you can come and just enjoy the environment, whether it's the beach or the bay or fishing offshore or onshore. It's just a, a great area to visit and you appreciate it. And much of our economy is driven by our environmental quality. And so in our area, all of us realize that if we don't have good water quality, then we will not have a good economy. And so that's a lot of drives across the board from you know your everyday citizen to the chamber of commerce. Everybody's concerned to keep our bays and beaches in good shape. You know, absolutely. I, I think that the connection between the health of the coastal environment and the health of the coastal economy, it could not be more vividly revealed than in Florida. Uh, over the last couple of years with red tide and other water quality issues in the nearshore area, there's been a substantial uh, suppression of the coastal tourism economy. And this work, the work that is done to manage these coastal resources, ensure that the environmental areas are healthy, is a foundation of the economy that all of you are engaged in. And each of you has this responsibility in your counties. In, and I what we want to talk about today is what you have to do to balance the incredible visitorship that you all experience in these gorgeous coastal areas with the environmental health that everyone is coming to enjoy. And the special roles that you have, I think, are slightly different, but very uh, interesting to talk about from a program standpoint. So I want to start with Jim Trefilio, the director of the Pensacola and Partido Bay uh, National Estuary Program. Uh, Jim, can you give us an overview of what you do at the estuary program and what it is uh, intended to accomplish? Sure. Um, you know, the, the tragedy of the Deepwater Horizon oil spill uh, gave birth to a lot of opportunities that we probably wouldn't have had otherwise. Uh, and so it's kind of a, a double-edged sword. But um, the National Estuary Programs have been around since the early or the late 1980s, uh, early 1990s. There are 28 national programs that are still up and running and doing good work. Um, because of the, well, maybe not because of, but in spite of the Deepwater Horizon and the funds that were available after that, um, there are opportunities. And one of the opportunities was the creation of estuary programs in the Panhandle in Northwest Florida. Um, we were fortunate enough in um, this region, in Escambia County and, and Perdido and Pensacola watersheds, to get a EPA grant that was funded through the Gulf Coast Ecosystem Restoration Council, uh, which was set up after the Deepwater Horizon spill. And even though we are not, none of the three in the Panhandle um, are national estuary programs at the present, we are modeled pretty much exactly after those national programs. And those programs are designed, um, they're place-based, they're non-regulatory, which is really important to remember, 
because all the good work that these programs have accomplished over the years has been done in a cooperative manner, not through regulations. And what their goal is, is to protect and restore water quality and ecological integrity of the estuaries that they're in. At the same time, maintaining a robust economic climate. So these aren't what you might consider your typical environmental programs. They're much more dealing with quality of life improvement, quality of place, um, keeping the economic environment um, in mind as well as the environmental uh, climate as well. So right now we have a partnership in the Pensacola Perdido um, estuary program of, it's a, a partnership of regional counties and municipalities. Uh, we were established in the fall of, of 2018 uh, via interlocal agreement. Uh, Florida has the statutory ability to allow local um, governments to form partnerships uh, when they have common goals that they're trying to reach. And that's how we established the, um, the Pensacola Perdido Estuary Program. So we are very much uh, just starting out. Um, right now, I'm currently the only staff member, um, although we are in the process of hiring two additional staff members. One will be a community education and outreach person, and the other will be a program scientist. And, and just to give you an idea of what at, what's at the heart of these, these programs, it's all stakeholder driven, everything that we do. And there's a management conference made up of technical education, economic committees in, in our case, uh, different programs have different committees. And those are the, the technical experts in their fields that advise the policy board to help them make decisions for the estuary program. So that's, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Um, but I, I just want to emphasize that it, it's a very holistic approach to trying to deal with some of these problems. Um, some of the areas of concern that we have include, I mean, our watersheds are about 8,000 square miles total in size, and they include um, areas of Alabama and Florida. And the mix of uses goes urban, suburban, rural, um, there's agriculture and silviculture activities. And so there are a number of different stressors or pollutants out there that, that need to be addressed. In fact, we just went through uh, what we we're calling a crosswalk exercise to look at um, existing uh, reports to see what commonalities there were in these watersheds. And it became very clear after doing some of this review that you know, the, the most prevalent concerns in water quality are nutrient levels, pathogens, turbidity, sediments, and, and dissolved oxygen levels. And so these are the kind of things that, that the uh, estuary programs are designed to, to deal with. I hope that that, that was a long winded. That's way a great overview. <laughs> That's fantastic. And, and, uh, Melinda, I'm going to, I want to follow up with you and, um, <clears throat> Jim, you, you kind of breezed through this, but, uh, maybe Melinda, you can go into some more detail. I'm curious to know who the stakeholders are. Um, who are what? What are the pushes and pulls that you all are contending with and trying to uh, come up with these? Uh, as you said, Jim, uh, you know these are consensus decisions. Uh, this is not a regulatory uh, structure. This is about bringing uh, best better practices along through you know willingness. Who are the stakeholders uh, in this situation? Yeah, thank you. Um, so each of our little areas that we are talking about today, we will each have a little bit different stakeholders involved. In the Choctahatchee area, we have not only are we in Florida, but we're also in Alabama, similar to the Perdido Pensacola. So we have representatives from the four counties within Florida. We also have a representative from Alabama and their watershed group. And we also have uh, people on our our particular board that we established from Eglin Air Force Base, which is a huge uh, land stakeholder in the Choctahatchee Bay area, as well as a nonprofit, which we consider an at-large, but the Choctahatchee Basin Alliance. They are a huge supporter of this area and br bring a lot of um, value with their programs that they have, with their restoration programs, their education programs, and having them on our boards and as part of our stakeholders, and that's just um, invaluable. We also, the partnerships, not 
that we have them specifically on our board, but the partnerships with just support with the cities, the counties, the business associations, those are all very, very valuable partners to have in this process because we're trying to create a, a program at grassroots. And if you don't have the support that you need to develop this program, it's not going to be successful. So that's what we're looking at. Well, thank you very much. I think that's that, that spectrum of interest that you've uh, discussed two states, the air force cities and counties. So we've got all levels of government and then the stakeholder community in business and recreation. I'm sure uh, tourism is also a big part of it. Fisheries, uh, commercial and recreational. Here's my question, and 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 Jim Muller, I want to give you a chance to maybe take a shot at this. Give us a sense of of the stakeholders that you have. But here's the question I want you all to be thinking about, and I want to talk about next. Um, it is difficult sometimes to bring together this disparate universe of people in a common direction for the benefit of coastal resources and the economy. There's differences of views on what's appropriate here. And here, here's what I'm wondering, uh, Jim, as you describe your coalition that you have to contend with uh, or have the pleasure of working with, I should say, uh, is there a shared understanding of the, of, of the uh, of the problem is there a shared understanding of this is what we have to do what to what extent do you have uh to each of you have a coalition of the willing if i can put it that way well um first of all let me just frame a little bit what our watershed is our watershed is much smaller than the other ones it's only about seven hundred fifty thousand acres um it's entirely within the state of florida uh, has two main base systems, the St. Andrew Bay and the St. Joe Bay. Uh, we have uh, a lot of upland forest and about 12% of it's developed. Uh, in general, it's in good shape, but we do have problems. Uh, we're the just getting started in terms of the formal program. Uh, this is going to be what I call a 30-year overnight success because it's based on the work of other uh citizen volunteer groups that have gone on and, and we had two of them one of them uh, uh which now is called the friends of uh saint andrew bay and the other one that's called saint andrew bay watch the friends of saint andrew bay actually originally proposed uh saint andrew bay as an estuary program back in 1995 uh they got that designation instead of us uh they also did a management vision for the bay which influenced our management plan that was put together by the uh, water management district. And then we also have our St. Andrew Bay Watch, uh, which is a uh, water quality monitoring. They started back in 1990. And so the water quality and the knowledge of that's a critical component of evaluating the health of our system. And then a few years ago, the Nature Conservancy spearheaded workshops on estuary watershed management, bringing together agency people and the public to identify uh, problems and potential solutions to develop a community-based watershed plan. So this is what we're starting to do now is building on the work of these other groups. The estuary program we're starting now is going to be hosted by the Florida State University of Panama City campus. Again, as Jim and Melinda mentioned, we're modeling on the estuary program. Uh, because we are a small watershed and we're totally within Florida, I tell people if we screw it up, it's our fault. We can't point to anybody upstream very far. So everybody, I think, is now on board that realization that the bay, our water quality, is an essential part of our economy. And everybody is very supportive, really on the same page of working together. The Chamber of Commerce has been one of the strongest supporters of getting this set up. Our Tourist Development Council has been very supportive as well. So we have, I think, pretty much a common mindset that we're in pretty good shape, but we want to make it better and we need to make it better both for our economy and the quality of life of everyone that lives here as well as our visitors. And uh, so that's what we're starting from. I feel very positive as far as people's reactions. And another thing that we kind of look at and point to as far as, as was said, it's a voluntary cooperative effort. And in Florida, we have something called transportation planning organizations. And those are groups uh, of cutting across uh, municipal county boundaries that look at the 
uh, road network. And really, our bay and watershed is a similar thing. We have uh, economically important as well as environmentally important resources that are shared that no one can manage on their own. And so we really need to come together and look at what the issues are and work together to solve them and to raise money in order to address those. So we're just getting started here, but the mindset I think is very positive and I feel good going forward that everybody realizes what's at stake and everybody is going to cooperate. This show is also brought to you by TI Coastal Services, a great coastal engineering firm from Wilmington, North Carolina, and the sponsor of ASPN's coverage of the Florida Shorn Beach Preservation Association meeting coming up in Hutchison Island, Florida, September 18th through the 20th. Thank you to TI Coastal Services for supporting that coverage and in this show today. Well, indeed, it'll be a, a fantastic uh, National Estuary Week for y'all, uh, celebrating uh, kind of the early, the early years of, of these programs, which is very cool. Um, now, I've, I've got to ask, you know, on Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network, we pay very close attention to what's going on in Florida. Uh, and we know that the issue of water quality, uh, water and the environment, uh, has been a political issue uh, of late with the the algal blooms and uh, just a plethora of issues. And I'm just curious to know up in now much of this uh, is down in the Okeechobee uh, drainage system uh, that we have followed. But I'm curious to know what's going on up up in y'all's neck of the woods on the Panhandle and on the Emerald Coast. What are are there any? What's hot right now in terms of uh, pol- politics and water quality. Um, what's 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 trending? I, w- I want to ask. And and Jim T, why don't we start with you? Sure. You know, I, just about six months or so ago, um, Governor DeSantis uh, released an executive order that was was pretty surprising um, for a lot of folks. That he was focusing on water quality with ex- this executive order and had ideas to work with um, the local economic development organizations to work with Visit Florida, the tourist organization in Florida, to help solve water quality issues. Uh, that's that's a brand new approach that, that I don't think any of us have seen before. And I think one of the things that's amazing, I mean, I've been in this business for so long that I remember you couldn't even say environmental out loud because people would think that automatically it was anti-economic um, development. And that has changed over the years, the decades. And I'll tell you a really quick story. Um, I used to work over in the Chakahatchee program and we had a, um, a ceremonial signing with um, Eglin Air Force Base that, that Melinda mentioned earlier um, for their support of the estuary program. And during the signing, the general um, got up and spoke very eloquently about how they could not do their military mission without their environmental mission. Uh, They actually have a group called Jackson Guard that they must have a hundred folks that do nothing but environmental work for Eglin Air Force Base. And so the, the, it's been turning over the years on how, you know, the environment is not anti-economic. It is hand in hand necessary for economic development. Uh, One more really quick story. Oh, again, over in the Choctahatchee, uh, one of our commissioners over there, Commissioner Kelly Wines, he is, has been an incredible supporter for the estuary program. And his background, he was a commercial charter boat captain for like 60 years. So he gets clean water. It was an easy sell for him. And so I think what we need to do, uh, back to your question about how do we get all these different groups together, you have to ask the right question. Um, you can't just say, hey, do you think, you know, we should have clean water? Well, yeah, of course, everybody's going to say yes. But when you tie it into some sort of an emotional connection that they have in their lives, um, you know, their kids want to be able to swim in the local river or in, or in the coast. Um, those are the types of things that that people respond to. And that's how I think you get those those different groups together is to make sure that you ask those right questions. Yeah, that's a great point of view. And uh, Melinda, you had mentioned in the uh, setup for the show today, tell us about National Estuary Week and why this matters and what you hope to do with that uh, 
coming up next coming up this week so national estuary week was originally established over 30 years ago and it was an opportunity to bring to light just information about your local estuaries there's many national estuary programs across the United States. And those programs do great work for the ecology of the area, for the water quality of the area, for the economy of the area. And by having a designated week that can highlight it, that's it gives the opportunity to, to bring the information to the public. And so here locally, I took that opportunity and worked with our local uh, counties to also deem it locally the National Estuary Week so that we could take this opportunity for education. You know, we're, we're at the emphasis of these programs and the best way of getting that public support is getting the information out there, educating them, making them excited about these kinds of programs that can do so much for our, our environment that we live in and that we enjoy and that we um want to have and preserve for the rest of our lives and and for generations to come. Absolutely. I think one of the, you know, for our audience out there, you know, it's it can be hard to keep track of all of the the special days and weeks and celebrations that we have along the shoreline. We do our best we can here at ASPN and Coastal News today to to follow along, but this is an important one because I think National Estuary Week is, you know, it's it's been around a long time. Uh we are as we are learning right now in this podcast uh much of our appreciation of estuaries is burgeoning it's 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 being born now and um and so this is an opportunity to raise awareness and uh get people to just take a moment and think about reflect about how important and how much we treasure and value american estuaries and peter you've been you've this has been a a a personal project for you for some time. You you really want to <laughs> go on a tour, actually, of uh, America estuaries and well, bays. Well, uh, we do have a dream that uh, on the American Shoreline podcast we'll do the, a series called Great Bayesian Estuaries of America and uh, spend a week in each of the Great Bay systems, and there's a lot of them around the uh, around the country, and uh, highlight what's happening in estuaries in America. But uh, you know, we're looking for some supporters out there who might underwrite something like that. But I do, I do think that uh, Melinda, that you're quite right. That and Jim, what you said about the realization of the connection uh, between our personal uh, lives, uh, what we want to do in recreation, that we want to take our kids to the beach, we want to go to the river, we want to go in these bays and fish. And for years and years, we've sort of taken it for granted. It's always sort of been there. But it seems to me Florida is proving to the country that you reach a point that if you're not careful about these complex systems, they can get out of balance. And it's and it's hor- horrific for people. Uh, the fish kills that have been down on the southeast Florida coast, manatees dying, whale sharks, millions of fish, the stench, the red tide, all of that is an indication that the system is out of balance. And here's the question I want to ask, Jim. We'll go to you, Jim Muller. Uh, At some point in the process to effectively uh, ensure that the environmental conditions are suitable for what we wish to have, which is healthy recreation and fishing and an economy and all that stuff, there has to be some adjustments made. Um, When you're thinking about Bay County and what you're in for in terms of managing that system what are the issues where are the pressure points what do you think you're going to have to persuade people to do a little bit differently to ensure the health of the base and estuaries in bay county well i don't know we may have lost jim if he comes back on i want him to answer that question but jim Trefilio in Escambia. How about that question for you? There does need to be some adjustments to make sure that these systems operate, these complex environmental and natural systems. Um, what are the pressure points in your area? What are the pressures or the risks or the challenges that you think you face as you form this estuary program and get it off the ground? Well, yeah, and, and I think that, you know, we, you know, we talked about the programs being non-regulatory, and that's such a huge point to these programs. Um, 
the Tampa Bay program, National History Program, is a perfect sort of poster child for how to get things done. They they actually went back, and their goal when they first started, they went back and looked at aerial coverage of seagrass in Tampa Bay um, back in the 1950s, pre-development. And their goal was to um, increase seagrass coverage for the bay to those pre-development conditions back in the 50s. And they actually met their goal something like five or six years early. And yeah. that was during a time of strong economic development in the Tampa Bay area. So, and that was all done without regulations. It was all done dealing with uh, local businesses and trying to get them to decrease their um, their input of nutrients into the, to the system. They dealt with local landowners, with individual, private individual landowners. Um, and, and I think that's not a direct answer to your question, but I think that that's how, whatever the pressure points are, I mean, that's how you do it. You, you, you make sure that those folks are, I mean, you answer the question, what's in it for me? I mean, and that's really what you have to answer. And, and I think that, you know, the Tampa Bay program is a, is a perfect example. And you can point to that and show people that, hey, yeah, we can do this in our area. We can solve these problems if we work together. And, you know, it, it may take some sacrifice on some people's part, but I think if they know they're going to get what they, they want, then they're willing to sacrifice. Right. And I've always thought that so much of environmental health could be uh, advanced if we simply were less sloppy about what we do as human beings. We are a little bit more careful with the waste streams we create. We're a little more sensitive to the fact that nutrient runoff is in, a contributor to uh, bay decline, that kind of thing. We There is room to be better and success does breed success. So it's great to hear about the Tampa Bay National Estuary Program success on seagrasses. Um, Melinda, over in Walton County, tell us a little bit about what you see looking down the road of, as the issues that you think you'll be grappling with and in, in your community and your stakeholders will be trying to solve. What's on the agenda, do you think, looking ahead? So I think the number one item for us is growth. Uh, just recently, there's been a report that came out in the Walton County area specifically, which is the central location of the Choctahatchee Bay and into and we have a good portion of the river in our boundary we just got deemed the fifth highest growing area in the united states dealing with that population increase that quickly is going to be challenging um we already have some very congested areas over in the okaloosa area our the areas in south walton are quite congested but making sure that we bring in that growth but do it responsibly is going to be the most essential key to making sure that our environment stays as well it is as it is we don't want to cause any more issues to our bay or to our river and reduce down the the value of this area that the people are actually moving here for people are moving here for the the beaches for the bay for the environment that we have because it is so it's a steam type setting that people actually enjoy being here i think that's 100 percent true and not an uncommon challenge on the american shoreline we love our coasts we love our beaches we love to fish and recreate in these areas and Man, I tell you, if people go, I told my son, you know, he was asking me, Dad, where should I go to the beach? I said, go to Navarre Beach. It will blow you away. It is absolutely stunningly beautiful. It's like it's it will well exceed your expectations. Uh, He's become a fan of that part. He lives in New Orleans, so this is a quick shot over. But this is where he goes. And it's many people who go to this part of the U.S. shoreline. Uh, I think experience, because it is stunning. There just is the combination of the freshwater ponds, the spring-fed rivers, the uh, the pine. It's just, a, it's a, it is incredible. And that, that demand really puts a premium on the work that each of you are trying to do, which is to manage a consensus stakeholder-based 
approach to to you know recognize that this economic growth is going to occur but work really hard to figure out how to protect and preserve these base systems um and jim trefilio as you said tampa bay did it with seagrasses during an economic boom there there are reasons to be optimistic uh my question really, uh, Melinda, I wanted to follow up on this on this demand because we've been we've been reading recently about the Topsail Hill area in Walton County and efforts to sort of limit some of the development uh, south. I think of it is of 30A. I mean, ultimately, some of these natural landscapes you want to have. Uh, in their current condition. It's a tough issue. What can you tell us about how development can be managed, what you think the consensus might be? Yeah, so actually we're kind of, we are in a situation in the South Walton area where we have a number of acres, I mean hundreds of acres, that are actually in state ownership. So they are either in state parks or some kind of public accessible property. And so those ecosystems that are located in those state parks, they are going to be preserved for for long term. It's surrounding that, making sure that the the surrounding land use is compatible with that conservation land as well. That's going to be challenging. I know our uh, our planning department has rewritten their comprehensive plan that's really helping a lot with some of the the future land use changes and stuff like that um and looking at all those in a comprehensive manner is is going to be very very valuable yeah and uh, you know i want to uh melinda you alluded to this and uh, i want to jim uh muller i believe you are back and uh, i want to i want to get you back in the conversation um and Really, I guess my, my question is, with this high rate of growth, uh, man, fifth fifth fastest growing. I mean, that's crazy. We live in Austin, Texas, which is notoriously fast growing. And uh, I know what that means when you're, like, driving down the road and the one, one week you, there's nothing, and the next week there's a building there. I mean, it, it's crazy. Um, so, Jim Muller, tell me about how you are working with specifically developers um, to find that common ground where there's obviously people are moving there specifically for uh, the beauty, the, the clean water, the fishing opportunities, the recreational opportunities with the, the fact that that's a major economic engine. Uh, how, do you, how do you work with these guys and get them to... Uh, pursue a style of development that is compatible with maintaining uh, environmental, this pristine environmental space? Yeah, that's a tough, tough question to answer. Um, One, you know, from our positions, it's really not an area that we have much impact in, at least not uh, directly. Um, I mean, you're talking about zoning laws and development laws and you know, the state of Florida used to have the Department of Community Affairs that was very active in uh, working on those types of issues, but um, that department has sort of faded over the years. So, it, yeah, it's a, it's a tough question because, you know, and then, you know, God bless, people are trying to make money. And so they're going to go out and do what, what makes the most money for them when they're doing developments. And I think that ultimately has to be um, the community has to decide and they have to talk to their local officials about what they want in their community. Now, the estuary programs can certainly help in that and be supportive in that, but I'm not sure that they can have a direct impact on it. Um, And again, you know, I mean, I've worked in local government for most of my life and that's where things get done. You know, it's really not at the national level. It's like you go to any of these commission meetings or council meetings and things that get passed at those meetings are things that affect individuals lives and that's where i think the you know you have to make your um, elected officials aware that this is the kind of life we want in our community right yeah that's the beauty of the american system is this kind of representative democracy republic that we have uh actions of 
uh, on the scale that we're discussing occur in the elected arenas in our system at the city council level, county commissioner level, special district level, um, and of course in Tallahassee uh, with the legislature and the governor. But uh, the, the key thing that I'm interested in uh, is that the efforts that you guys are undertaking to develop estuary programs and it ultimately each of you seems dedicated to the notion that you will want be part of the National Estuary Program System, which is part of EPA's responsibility, uh, federal oversight, but locally managed uh, programs. These are really interesting and, and effective uh, management tools. Um, I'm interested. I'm going to ask each of you about financially. The obli- how do you how do you underwrite and support financially these kinds of programs? And for the benefit of the listeners, uh, the Restore Act and the BP oil spill is really the foundation for the efforts. It sounds like that you're engaged in now. Every county. Well, let's see. Let's see. Twenty three counties in Florida receive an annual chunk of money as a result of the BP oil spill. Um, And there are eight disproportionately affected counties. These are the counties that receive a bigger share. And each of you are from a disproportionately affected county under the Restore Act legislation and receive regular annual appropriations that can help support the launch of these programs. But we all know that the Restore Act funding is not permanent. It lasts, I believe, for 15 years. We're probably in, what are we, in year 10? Uh, uh, Melinda, can you talk about what what it's going to take financially to support the effort you ultimately want to build here? Yeah, I can touch on some of that. So we here in the Choctahatchee area, we have two counties that are included in our coalition, both Okaloosa and Walton County, that were considered one of those eight disproportionate counties. And so with that, there has been opportunity for receiving penalty funds associated with the deep deep water horizon oil spill. So Okaloosa County has dedicated quite a bit of their different pots of money to the establishment of the estuary program. And Walton County has looked at it and they're doing support funding. And a lot of it they've they've dedicated and said that they want to see $10 million go towards restoration of the Toftahatchee Bay. So there's a lot of funding mechanisms that are coming together so that we could start some of this work. Obviously, the first step is the Uh, comprehensive conservation management plan, which will identify the, the needs of the area, the projects that need to be established and how, you know, where are we going, going to get from point A to point B and see any kind of restoration activities. So with that, those funding mechanisms are time limited. So as a, as an estuary program, there will be time in the future where we will have to start seeking out other funding mechanisms, whether it's state or federal grants, local contributions. Um, it'll, it'll be set up as kind of similar to a business. You need to have funding to have the operational side, but you need to have funding to support the projects as well. So those are things that we're going to have to look into. This show is also brought to you by the DHI Group. DHI are the first people you should call when you have a tough challenge to solve in a water environment, be it a river, reservoir, an ocean, a coastline, or within a city or a factory. Their knowledge of water environments is second to none. It represents 50 years of dedicated research and real-life experiences from more than 140 countries. They strive to make their knowledge globally accessible to clients and partners by channeling it through local teams and unique software. You should check them out. We've got advertisements on coastalnewstoday.com. We've been profiling them in the Daily Blast email. But go to dhigroup.com to learn more. Uh, Jim Trefilio, I understand when when EPA uh, endorsed the formation of your organization in 2018, you received, what, $2 million from the federal government to help uh, get the program. Is that is that accurate? I think I've read it. Yeah, it's $2 million, and it comes from the Gulf Coast Ecosystem Restoration Council, oh, okay. that's which was th- set up um, after the deep water spill. Okay, that's okay. I, that is a Restore Act-related entity then. Jim Trefilio, in... in 
in the Pensacola and Perdido Bay Estuary program right now, you mentioned you're going to pick up a couple of staff people, uh, a, a scientist and a, a communication outreach coordinator person. Uh, looking down the road for you, how, how are you seeing the financial landscape ahead of you? What's the level of support from your county? How is the state playing in to help our listeners understand what it takes to run these things financially? Sure. It's, it's a long-term effort. Um, and, and I think at, at some point, um, each of the representative members in, in our estuary program will have to pony up financially. Um, how that plays out, what the distribution is going to be, that's still yet to be determined. But I think, I think that's not that difficult. Um, you know, we have to show progress. Um, we have to show project progress and not just plan development. It's very hard to sell, you know, the fact that we're developing a plan to a county, for instance, that has a very tight budget and ask them to support that right. financially. Yeah. But if they can see something in the ground that's a benefit to their citizens and to the region in general, then it's a whole lot easier of a, of a sales pitch. Um, so that's a long term, you know, they have to believe in us and that we, we have to actually be doing good work. Um, I think that ultimately, once these programs have the uh, the CCMP plan developed, I think that project money won't be a problem. There's a lot of grant money out there. There's going to continue to be a lot of restore dollars out there. Um, so I don't think that's going to be a problem. I think just trying to get the operational dollars on board in a consistent manner, um, I think that's probably a harder sell. Yeah. But um, it's doable. And I think there's there's a ton of different, you know, sort of low-hanging fruit. I mean, I used to work for the tourist development department and they've got a pretty healthy budget, most of them along the panhandle. Right. And I think that's a very reasonable, you know, and fits well into what the estuary program does. I mean, if you want clean water for your tourists, you're gonna have clean water for your residents. And yep. so why would you not want to support that activity? I and in fact, if you look at the state legislature just oh, maybe three sessions ago, they changed what bed taxes could be used for. And they literally included the phrase estuary improvement. Fantastic. So, you know, it's a legal use of those bed tax dollars. And I think it's a very reasonable use. Uh, you know, I, I, it is absolutely one of my pet peeves. I think there needs to be reform of bed taxes, occupancy taxes, accommodation taxes. They're called different things. In Texas, they're called hotel occupancy taxes. I think that the the days when all of those revenues went into promotion uh, were, and I don't, I know it doesn't strictly go into promotion, but I think the days when those revenue streams were set aside. Uh, for the traditional uses have is really coming to an end and needs to come to an end along the American shoreline. The uses of those revenues, uh, which are driven by visitorship and tourism need to be reinvested in the uh, resources that these people are coming to visit and enjoy. And, uh, I think there's plenty of money in that system. I'm really pleased to hear that Florida added estuary uh, health uh, improvement as a specific authorized use of uh, bed taxes. And I'll just give a shout out to Texas. Come on, Texas. And how about North Carolina and the other coastal states? That's a smart move. And I think uh, I'm really glad to hear that financially because being effective in resource management on the coast is an expensive proposition. Um, and we've talked a little bit about the money. Let's talk about the projects, though, because Restore Act funds have been flowing into the doors, uh, into your counties uh, since the spill. And I know there's been some pretty good uh, projects undertaken. Uh, Melinda, can you highlight in, in Walton County uh, the things that you're most proud of with the revenues that you've received from the Deepwater Horizon spill? If, if there are any, I hope there are. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So we've we've been privileged to receive NIFWIF funding that was uh, channeled through the BP oil spill pe penalties, and one of those uh, Melinda, Melinda, I'm to interrupt you because for our listeners out there, uh, NIFWIF, the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's government okay. acronym. So <laughs> all the alphabet soup here. So excuse me on that. Um, so. It was a type of funding that we received and it allowed for a sediment 
study that we did on the river. So in our area, we have a lot of dirt, uh, dirt roads still, you know, and within because of dirt roads, we have a lot of sediment going into our river, which ultimately goes down into our bay. So it's one of those things that we needed to prioritize what needs to be done. And it was something that was able, a study that went across Walton County, Holmes County, and Washington County, and we're able to to create that priority list to look at projects in the, here in the future. We also have had some good restoration projects along our coastal dune links, hydrologic restoration, as well, as well as habitat restoration projects that came from the NERDA or the Natural Resource Damage Assessment Funds that were also associated with the Deep Horizon oil spill. And then I know that we have some dedicated funds, both in the Okaloosa County Pot 1 or the direct component funds, as well as the, the Walton County funds that will will help with some additional stormwater projects and um, things that will will improve water quality for the bay. Jim T, do you have uh, any projects cooking in your area? No, I mean, Scambia County certainly does, but I'm not 100% familiar with them because for the past 14 years, I was working over in Okaloosa County. Uh, but I can tell you one really interesting project we did over there which was, again, back to Eglin Air Force Base, um, they have uh, a, a, a spot on their, their facility that's called the um, Air Force Materials Lab. And they basically shoot inert missiles at these huge, huge pieces of concrete. And once they shoot them, they can't use them anymore. So they just sit there on their, their property until there's so much of it, they have to hire a contractor to haul it away and put it in a landfill. So we went to them and we said, hey, you know, why don't you let us take this material for free and you won't spend the sixty or $70,000 every year to cart it off your property and we'll use it for artificial reefs. And so we've, we've done that a number of times over in Oklahoma County uh, using some restore funds and using some bed tax funds. But it's an ongoing uh, partnership with Eglin that um, we foresee it going into the future and you know as long as they keep shooting stuff we'll keep putting stuff in the water it's a uh it's it's a beneficial use of target material <laughs> i don't know we got to yeah, come up with a good and, name and, on that it, and it saves landfill space too so it's it's just a perfect little project and it's it's great for everybody that is that is a cool project i'm happy to hear that you know it's interesting around the american shoreline the u.s military uh, which which is a, a maybe the largest singular coastal property owner on the American shoreline could be. I haven't I haven't done the math on that, but it seems reasonable between Wouldn't, the Navy and the Air Force and all these bases everywhere. Yeah, and in this area, Tyndall Air Force Base and Eglin Air Force Base, two important, and the Blue Angels are located at Eglin Air oh, Force wow. Base. So this is a very very cool part. Everyone loves the Blue Angels. How can you not love the Blue Angels? But. Yeah, the military, big time. Well, and it's and they they have uh, around the American shoreline, story after story after story uh, have been coming up with some innovative ways to uh, protect wetlands. Uh, to in this case, use this uh, cement material, concrete material, uh, to give it to y'all for reefing. That's a really good idea. And props to the military for uh, for being a good participant on that. That's that's wonderful news. Uh, can you guys give us an update on Tyndall Air Force Base? And of course, that that Air Force Base was devastated by a hurricane. What a couple of years ago? Is anybody uh, up to date and can give our listeners an update on the status of Tyndall Air Force Base? Um, unfortunately, I don't know a whole lot about what the status of it is. I believe that they're going to be rebuilding. I know Jim. Um, Miller's going to be able to answer some of those questions. You know, I, I just wanted to uh, thank you guys for the work that you're doing, because this is where the rubber meets the road, in my experience on the American shoreline and working with communities. It has to be down at the grassroots level. You have to engage people. You have to find a shared understanding of the conditions that you're trying to develop. That's not done in city council meetings where people can speak for two minutes. It's done through the kind of organizations that each of you are leading right now, uh, these stakeholder-driven, uh, 
hard work, face-to-face efforts to try to understand the challenges in the shoreline areas that you manage and to come up with positive approaches that can be supported in the community. So uh, I would just like to say thanks for that work and offer each of you a chance to sort of summarize where you are, what you hope for in the future. And Melinda, let's start with you. When you're looking down the road, tell us about what you hope to do with your work in Walton County. We have here in Walton County, Okaloosa County, the Choctahatchee Bay area, we have really taken the first great first steps in establishing a coalition board. You know, we were were able to establish it in 2017. And since then, we've been trying to find our funding supports to be able to, to build and develop this program. But at the end of the day, we want to bring a legacy to this area. We want you know, Choctahatchee Bay and the ecosystems that are surround it, they're so invaluable to this area. The the economic stimulus it has because of our tourists and our locals and the quality of life, it's just, it's so important. And so we want to leave a legacy for generations to come and know that their environment is going to be here for all those generations. Well, it's the work of the Lord is what I would call it. I mean, this is the challenge, and I wish you guys the best of luck in uh, Walton County and putting that together. Jim Trefilio, what about you when you're looking down the road? Uh, what are your hopes about the program you're running, and what do you hope to accomplish? Yeah, I think that, you know, the, the estuary programs, they're, they're, they're once in a generation, once in a lifetime kind of opportunities, you know, that came from the Deepwatersville and you know, we, we can't not be successful. And and my vision is that these programs become essentially embedded in the communities where they are. And they're at every table. They're at land development discussions. They're at workforce development discussions because it's all ultimately quality of place. Um, I, I, I had hired some millennials a while back and heard this story about how millennials they don't look in the newspaper and go where the jobs are. They go where they want to live and then they find work. So if you don't have a community that people want to live in, you're not going to get the best and the brightest to come work in your industries. And so that that's where I see these estuary programs. I mean, really at the, as you said, grassroots earlier, you know, really at that level where you're, you're involved a little bit in everything and not just the science of improving water quality. Well said, Jim. Uh, I, as a millennial, I will attest to uh, that being a fact. Certainly, for many of me, for many of my uh, my millennial colleagues out there, um, I have one final up question. Again, we'll start with Melinda here. But uh, as we've mentioned, it's National Estuary Week this week, and uh, I'm sure that uh, there's some interesting programming and things going on. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you've got going on for National Estuary Week? Yeah, we're hoping to get out a few press releases and just some information out to the public about the program and just information about estuaries in general. You know, that's it's not common knowledge necessarily. I mean, people people know what they enjoy. No, it is not. (laughs) Yes. And so, you know, if you enjoy paddleboarding, hey, where are you paddleboarding? Is it an estuary? Are you do you enjoy fishing? Where do you enjoy, where's your favorite fishing hole? I bet it's in an estuary. You know, just relating all these, the quality of life and the the things that people enjoy so much to, um, to. The general awareness. Yeah, I mean, we don't know enough about these really critical environmental spaces. And uh, I think those are great goals. Uh, Jim T, uh, any, any big plans for National Estuary Week? You know, very, very much the same as what Melinda said, just trying to get the word out. Um, we're so young into our program right here, we don't even have a website set up yet. But, you know, I would ask folks to, um, if they're interested in our SRA program, to, you can either call me at uh, 850-595-0892, uh, or you can email me at jtrifi l-i-o at myescambia.com and i can get you on our distribution list uh would love to have your support and your participation in the program um looking forward to this program and the other two being very successful 
Fantastic. And Melinda, tell us how people can learn more about and get in touch with the Choctahatchee Bay work that you're doing. Yeah. So there's a lot of information out there on the Choctahatchee Basin Alliance Alliance's website. You can just Google them. They have a lot of information specifically on the bay. But if you need, would like to learn more about the coalition, you can contact me at 850-892-8108 or through email, which is G-A-T-M-E-L-I-N-D-A at C-O dot Walton, W-A-L-T-O-N dot F-L dot U-S. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you very much from the Emerald Coast, Jim Trefilio, director of the Pensacola and Perdido Bay Estuary Program, uh, Melinda Gates, the environmental coordinator and estuary coalition leader for Walton County, Florida, and earlier on the show, Jim Muller, the Bay County Restore Act coordinator in Panama City, uh, the folks at the front lines of the American shoreline in this beautiful part of the uh, coastline uh, in the Emerald Coast of Florida. Thank you guys for being on the American Shoreline podcast today. Thank you guys. Appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Singing mama